glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to read two verses, verses 7 and 8. Let me say very quickly, 1 Corinthians 5 is about dealing with a problem inside the Corinthian church of uncleanness and sin. And he uses these verses in the New Testament to believers who are saved by grace to a local New Testament church, the church at Corinth, to give them some understanding of how they ought to deal with the practical issue of sin because of their position as saved people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What the Apostle Paul is doing here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using an Old Testament truth and bringing to light a New Testament truth, that as the Passover of the Old Testament was offered up and to the Jewish people became a tradition that was held that Passover spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a picture of Christ. He is our Passover. He is sacrificed for us. And encompassed in this is because our Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ, is sacrificed for us, we should eat the bread or live the life of, uh, uh, of unleavened lives and keep the feast of rejoicing in Christ with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's using those Old Testament physical pictures of a Passover lamb sacrifice, the feast of unleavened bread, as a picture of not only how the believer in Christ is saved, but what that faith in Christ and salvation means, and that is to live a life of holiness and godliness because of salvation. Go, go back now, if you would, to Exodus 12. So if Christ is called our Passover, then he, he is then seen in the Passover. We go back to the literal account, the historical account, of the institution of the Passover feast. And, of course, that's the time of year we happen to be at right now. Uh, if you look at the Bible, the month Abib, the first month of the Hebrew calendar, corresponds with our month of April. And so there's, there's many things that make this significant. But for us, the, the significant aspect of this is that the Passover of the Old Testament is a shadow and a picture of Christ in the New Testament. So Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Let me just, again, very quickly, the ten, nine plagues have been fulfilled at this time. Pharaoh's been judged, been told to let God's people go. He will not. The tenth plague is about to be instituted. And so the Passover is the preparation of the, of the Israelites for that plague. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him... And his neighbor next unto his house, take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night roast with fire. And unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. 
that which, rema- which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. For time's sake and so forth. We'll stop reading there for now. You may be seated. These first number of verses are going to constitute our first point in the message this morning, uh, dealing with the nation of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. And it's interesting, everything that takes place uh, all at one time during this first Passover. You've heard of Passover to this very day. It's still a Jewish feast that is kept. We understand and know that that Passover feast is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, meaning its very purpose for being instituted and implemented was to speak forward of better things to come, as the book of Hebrews will call it. And that is the Passover lamb had no power uh, to wash away sins, but it was a picture of the coming of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would take our place for sin. And that is why in 1 Corinthians 5 he's referred to as Christ the Passover. But I I think this is interesting. When we deal with, and I find that maybe it's me more than others, but when we deal with people about being saved, Generally or typically what we mean is there's judgment coming from God on sin and if you're going to be saved from God's wrath and judgment you need to have your sins dealt with and we normally deal with salvation from a singular aspect and that is salvation from the condemnation of sin because that's the prevailing element you see in the Bible when we hear the word saved but if you look at the Passover the Passover event constituted salvation really in a threefold manner to the, to the people of God, to those who put their faith in the promise of God that if they would apply blood of a lamb to their doorpost, God would spare the firstborn in the home. If there was no blood, the firstborn would die. If the blood of the lamb was there, it was a token, a picture of the faith of the people inside and the promise of God and of the, the sacrifice of that lamb to have substituted for them. And so instead of the firstborn dying, the lamb died. And what a beautiful, tremendous picture of what salvation is. Throughout the Bible, salvation is the substitute of the guiltless for the guilty so that the guilty can be forgiven. All the way back to Abel's lamb. That's We started with the coats of skins in Genesis 3. Abel's uh, uh, offering in Genesis 4. And throughout we see that salvation from God's plan of salvation is not for the sinner to redeem themselves through good works. That was the way of Cain. That was the Tower of Babel. God's way of salvation is faith in His promise to redeem us and forgive us. Faith in a spotless substitute who dies for us. The guilty, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, that we might be justified. And so that's the picture throughout Scripture. And we see it again this morning in the Passover. And began to say, we often think of salvation only as being saved from the wrath of God, saved from an eternity in hell, saved from the lake of fire, and all that's true. But in, in the Passover, you see, again, there was a threefold salvation. That's going to constitute our message this morning, that, that the Passover was a, it was a night of deliverance for Israel while it was a night of judgment for Egypt. In the judgment upon Egypt, God brought out of Egypt a people for himself. And what is pictured there is even today, 
greater than just one nation out of one nation. God is calling a nation of people out of the world and He's calling them out the same way. Through faith, not in the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the lamb. And I want to, with God's help, keep this just as simple as we can. But on this night of deliverance, there was not only deliverance from the death angel, and that's our first point, certainly there was. The Israelites that who put blood on their doorposts and the side posts of their doors, uh, they, were, they did not experience what the Egyptians did. On that night, every Egyptian who did not apply the blood knew, including Pharaoh, including the, the servant who worked in his palace, every firstborn in those homes died that night. And we'll talk about the significance of why the firstborn. But the reason they died is they did not come to God, God's way, and when judgment came from God, it fell on every household. God was no respecter of persons, but God made a promise to those in the nation of Israel that if you apply the blood to the doorpost, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And we'll talk about the significance of that. But that was one aspect of their deliverance. Upon the Passover, and I'm just going to say all this by way of introduction, then we'll look at it in detail. Upon the Passover lamb and the blood applied, there was deliverance from the judgment of God. But inside the house where the blood was applied, they were eating unleavened bread. That unleavened bread was a symbol and a picture and a type. It's the same symbolism Paul applies in 1 Corinthians 5 that he said, keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That unleavened bread presents a life of holiness, a life not engaging in sin, but a life... Uh, though we're living in a sinful world, though we're living in a, in a condemned world, we can live lives of purity and holiness. Leaven speaks of sin. God says, I want your lives unleavened. And because of the blood on the doorpost, they could live unleavened lives inside the house. So they're not only delivered from the wrath of God, they're delivered from the corrupting influence of Egypt. And thirdly, they were not only delivered that, they were delivering from, delivered from the controlling power of Egypt. It was the night of the Passover that the Jews quit being slaves to, to men, quit being slaves to the world they lived in and became servants of God. This is what happens when someone's born again. There's a threefold, if you would, uh, the, the salvation that takes place, a deliverance in our lives that takes place the moment we're saved. And so let's, let's look at this in a more detailed way. I wanted to say that by way of introduction so we kind of have a picture of where we're going with this because there's a lot of ground to cover and I don't want to take a long time to cover it, but I believe the picture of salvation is so abundantly clear in the Passover. And again, I'll say it again, I, I delight in the fact we can go back to text that was written 1,400 years before Jesus ever stepped foot on earth and speak so clearly of what he came to do meaning God's way of salvation has always been the same. And they could, by shadow and type, know that this was all speaking of something greater, but it was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. But you and I can look back with the indwelling Holy Spirit and say, wow, look, God already had our salvation planned way back then. His plan of salvation has always been the same through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as they look forward in shadow and mystery, we look back and see the shadow and it gives us great clarity. And so... Point number one this morning was we consider the Passover as a night of deliverance. What God was... Let me ask you this, by the way. Who delivered them or released them from their, their bondage in Egypt? Did Pharaoh release them or did God? God did. Pharaoh said, no, 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 I'm going to hold them. I'm going to keep them. I don't want to let them go. May I say this? I believe this. While the world despises Christians, 
the world wants to use us for their own purposes. But when the trump sounds, you know what? They're going to have to let go. (laughs) When the Lord says, here come my people, we're going to meet him in the clouds, and I'm looking forward to that day. That's all free. But in this deliverance, it's not a deliverance. Number one, the deliverance that God provided to the nation of Israel, that's a picture of the deliverance that is provided to every believer in Jesus Christ, was a deliverance from the condemnation of sin. God was moving on Egypt. Why were the plagues falling on Egypt? We all understand this. Why did God send ten plagues on Egypt? Because of the stubbornness and hardness of Pharaoh's heart. We say, well, God hardened him. The Bible says Pharaoh also hardened himself. He was so harsh on God's people that they cried out in oppression and said, God set us free. Pharaoh is a picture and a type of Satan. No doubt about it. You could know that Pharaoh is a picture and type of the Antichrist who will come in the book, as we see in the book of Revelation and set up an earthly kingdom for the worship of himself. Pharaoh, yes, was worshiping and leading worship of many false gods, but ultimately Pharaoh acted as though he was God. Did he not? And when God said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey him? He was a rebel of all rebels. That's why he represents Satan. Now, I'm not going to do what God says. And then God began to plague him with the water to blood and with lice and flies and frogs and darkness and cattle disease and hail and fire and all those things. And finally, Pharaoh said, I have sinned and some of you can go, but not all of you. And he tried to dicker and deal with God. He would acknowledge, I've sinned, but... Not this time. I've sinned this time, but maybe not last time. He never repented. Is a picture of, as I said, Satan, the god of this world. And even as Pharaoh ruled Egypt, the god of this world rules this world, oppresses those under his care, especially the people of God. And so God, through nine plagues, had told Pharaoh, you're going to let my people go. And now judgment in the tenth plague is going to fall. And it's going to fall on the firstborn in the land because of sin. Judgment is on the earth because of sin. Anytime someone says, why would a good God let so many bad things into his good world? May I say to you that God did not introduce evil to this world? Satan did. Then some some scorner in the likeness of Pharaoh will say, well, didn't God make Satan? He did, and he made him just as he chose, and Satan used his choice to rebel against God. And it is not God that introduced sin, it was Satan. It was not God that sinned against man, but man who sinned against God. And condemnation and judgment is on this earth. Death entered through sin, Romans 5 says. So that death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So as we come to Exodus 12, we've come to the tenth plague. And this tenth plague is the, the, the ultimate judgment of God on Egypt because of the stubbornness rebellion and sinfulness of Pharaoh and those under his lead against God. And God says, I'm going to judge sin. Even so, we read the book of Revelation. You understand that the wrath of God in the book of Revelation is falling on humanity because of the rebellion against God led by the God of this world. Amen? So it's all, this is all foreshadowing. It's like a microcosm of what's going to, what took place in Egypt. It's like a microcosm of what's going to take place in the world as a whole before everything comes to a conclusion. In fact, there's great correlation between the plagues that you find in Egypt and the plagues you find in the book of Revelation. Great correlation. And so you find God judging sin in the world, but God is offering to His people a Passover, meaning I'm going to judge, but I'm willing to not judge you, but here's my condition. So let's consider a few things under their deliverance from the condemnation of sin. The judgment of God is going to fall on Egypt in one night, but God provided salvation. And the provision that God made is seen in the verses we just read, 
We won't have to read them all again because we just read them. But the provision God made was this. It begins in verse 3. When God, through Moses, so through his word, he communicates to his people, speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the house will be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall your count uh, make your count for the lamb. Then verse 13 says, And the blood, so the blood from that lamb, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the righteousness of the people inside, I will pass over you. Because when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. When I smite the land of Egypt, God says, I'm going to smite the land but I am providing a way for the firstborns in your houses to not be smitten when I do. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you, number one, the provision of God was a spotless lamb. The criteria God gives for this lamb is that it has to be a lamb uh, 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 without blemish. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. The idea without blemish, blemish means an imperfection, something that makes that, uh, that lamb unfit or unworthy, uh, that, which, that which mars it and makes it incomplete. Uh, turn, if you would, in your Bibles or listen along, whichever you choose to do. First Peter chapter 1. The lamb must be without blemish, no mar. How many of us then would qualify as the sacrifice here if the lamb is representative of what God expects before he'll pass over? The lamb had to be without blemish. That's a picture of God's expectation of perfection, of holiness, of righteousness, of spotlessness. How many of us, our record before God is without blemish? We know the answer to that. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That lamb speaks, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When the Lord Jesus walked uh, in his earthly ministry before John the Baptist, John chapter 1, John the Baptist pointed at the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. When God was going to provide Israel a Passover, meaning a deliverance from his wrath, he said, I'm going to smite Egypt. I'm going to bring judgment for their sin. But I have provided for you a way to be spared my wrath. And what did he provide to them? A lamb. Now, many of you are familiar enough. We don't need to take a lot of time to explain why a lamb is such a beautiful and perfect type of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, repeatedly is called the Lamb of God. The Lamb is white, speaking of the purity and sinlessness of Jesus Christ. It was a male lamb. It was one that was only a year old, meaning it was still in what we would think of as an innocent little creature. It's a lamb. Uh, it, is, it is innocent and pure. It's a picture of, of complete, spotless purity. It's what God requires. He did not give Israel... Do you notice He provided a lamb before He provided law? Don't miss that. God provided the lamb before He provided them law because they could not keep the law. And you and I must understand that the judgment and wrath of God is coming on this earth. In fact, we are condemned already, according to John 3.18. But God has provided a lamb so that when the wrath falls, Revelation tells us all about that, that you and I can be spared from wrath through Him. The provision of God is a spotless lamb 
which must be a sacrificial lamb. You'll notice God didn't just say, get you a lamb of the first year, a male without blemish and without spot, and make that your pet. He didn't say, bring it into the house and stand the living lamb in front of the house. No. He said, you have to slay the lamb. You have to shed the blood of the lamb. You have to catch. You'll find later in this chapter, Moses gives instruction. You're to put the blood of that lamb in a basin and you're to get some hyssop that was a bush that you could find that would work like a brush and you're to brush that on the side post and the lintel of your door to represent that this, this home needs a substitutional sacrifice. We must understand that God's view of sin is very different than ours. God says sin is so horrid that it requires death and shed blood to atone for. Meaning sin requires the death penalty. It requires that the innocent give his blood for the guilty, which is exactly what the Lord Jesus did. So God's provision for them to be saved from the condemnation that was coming on Egypt was he said, take you a lamb, a lamb of the first year without spot, without blemish. But that lamb is not only to be spotless, it must be sacrificed. It must Die. Hebrews 9.22 again says, And almost all things are purged with, with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. May I say this? Any religion that says you can redeem yourself with God without the shedding of Jesus' blood is a false religion. Any religion that says you do your best and God will do the rest, you work hard and you show God you're really good at your heart and we appreciate that Jesus died, He simply died as an example. He did not die as an example. He died as a substitute. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is a good life. That's what most religion teaches. The wages of sin is what you're going to have to do because you've sinned is do better. The wages of sin is you're going to have to work hard. No, no, there was hard work before sin. The wages of sin is death. God says the paycheck for disobedience is you have to die. When death, and that's, by the way, it's the law of sin and death. It can't be changed. When we have sin in us, we have death in us. The wages of sin is death. So the Lord says, I'm not only providing you a a way of of salvation and deliverance through this lamb, but you must take that lamb, that prized, spotless lamb, and it must die. It must not only die, its blood must be shed, and it must be burnt with fire. And then you have to eat that lamb. Now, you got your prized lamb, and I'm assuming that you might want to keep your prized lamb, not sacrifice it. And what, what Jesus says in John 6 is this, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And as many on that day thought he was teaching cannibalism, he was not. He said, my words are spirit and they are life. He was saying, what I'm saying to you is you must believe on the broken body of Jesus Christ. You must put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You must actually consume it and take it personally as your own. When you eat something, you are taking it as your own. You're ingesting it as your own. You realize what that lamb did? It provided protection from God's judgment and it gave life to the one who consumed it. You realize the the Israelites are going to have to take a journey. They're going to need strength for their journey, would they not? You know, what the, you know what the Lord Jesus Christ provides for us? Through his death, he shields us from the wrath of God. And through his life, he sustains us. He gives us nourishment and nutrition. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, you eat my flesh. You know what? You know what? When I know that Jesus Christ not just died for the world, but he died for me and I put my personal trust in him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am consuming him. I am accepting and receiving him as my own. 
And that transfers his life. Isn't that what happened? When you eat an animal, the life of that animal is dead so that you may live. He is transferring the nutrition in him to you. What a picture of salvation. That the, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was, would be slain for us. Uh, he's not only a spotless Lamb, but a sacrificial Lamb. Let me read to you, excuse me please, uh, quickly Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, verse 2 says, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling savor. And so then the provision of God in Exodus 12 was a spotless lamb. He had to be without blemish, a sacrificial lamb. It had to die, but as we've seen, that was also a substitutional lamb, meaning if the firstborn in your house is going to live, the lamb had to die. Either the firstborn was going to die or the lamb was going to die, but if you said, you know, I really like my lamb and I don't want to kill him and I really like my firstborn son or daughter and I don't want them to die, so I'm not going to sacrifice the lamb and I don't want my child to die. It was one or the other. Now some might say, why the firstborn? What did God have against the firstborn uh, in Egypt? If you're a student of the Bible, the firstborn throughout is symbolic. If you've read 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5, it speaks of the first Adam and the last Adam representing the, the, the nature you're born with and the nature you're given when you're born again. The first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15 says, is nat- natural or fleshly. When you and I were born, that's the, old, that's the first us. Sinful and fit for God's destruction. You and every one of us is, is fit for when we're born? Destruction. John 3.18 again, we're condemned already. The way we are born naturally is not acceptable to God. And the slaying of the firstborn in Egypt, there's more implications to that having to do with Israel being God's firstborn. You can read about that in Exodus 3. But by way of symbolism and type in the New Testament, the firstborn is a picture of the sinful nature of man. And what God was judging in Egypt was the sin of man. And God says, and if you don't want to be destroyed with the judgment that's coming, you must put your faith in my word and in the substitutional, spotless, sacrificial lamb. And if you do that, you trust, I promise, God makes a promise. We'll get to that in a moment. You put the blood on your doorpost and you have not to fear my judgment inside that house. I will pass over you. And so then the provision of God was a spotless, sacrificial, substitutional lamb the precaution of God, Exodus 12, 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. God's not saying I might. He said judgment's coming. You need to prepare. Does that sound familiar? We don't have time to turn to all these places, but if you were to read 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, and read the book of Revelation, you'll hear God saying, I will judge. I will. I will come. Revelation 19, we see the Lord Jesus Christ returning on a white horse with, with, uh, with a rod of iron in his hand, not for the purpose of salvation, but for the purpose of judgment. God has declared judgment is coming. And uh, we hear that in Second Peter. You hear it in Jude that he will judge the ungodly on this earth as we saw in our series in the book of Jude. But what we find is this substitutional lamb. By the way, Romans 5, 8, 
But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, just like the Lamb died in place of the firstborn. Christ died in the place of our sinful self. That firstborn again speaks of our sinful nature. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Here's the phrase I want you to notice. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I love Romans 5, 8. God commended his love toward us and that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. But Galatians 2, 20 gets a little more personal. He loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, just understand, it's completely unlikely, almost impossible, that the Apostle Paul would have been at the foot of the cross Never, to our knowledge, never met the Lord Jesus in flesh. He met him in, on the road to Damascus by way of a vision. But yet Paul knew that Jesus Christ died for him. And today you and I must understand that the lamb was offered to the nation of Israel, but it had to be applied personally to every house and it had to be ingested by the individual. That makes sense this morning. It was a promise to all, but it had to be partaken at an individual basis. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He provided us a spotless, sinless, sacrificial, substitutional Lamb. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The world means everybody, but whosoever means anybody. The individual, whosoever believeth in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So the provision of God, the spotless, sacrificial, substitutional Lamb, the, pro- the precaution of God, I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will smite the firstborn. Letter C, if you're taking notes, the promise of God, verses 13 and 14. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now, how many firstborns do we have in the room here? Just lift your hand good and high if you would, firstborns. Okay. You envision, thank you, put your hands down. <clears throat> Being in a house, God is warned. You've watched God warn of nine plagues and carry every one of them out. He said, I'll turn water to blood, and he did. He said, I'll send frogs, and he did. He said, I'll send uh, lice, and he did. I'll send flies, and he did. I'll send darkness, and he did. I'll send a grievous murrain, and he did. I'll send hail, and he I mean, nine plagues. The last one, the ninth, was the darkness over all the land of Egypt. He said, I'm going to do it, every one, and he did. <laughs> And you're the firstborn, and you hear Moses saying, we have one more plague coming. God has said, I will pass through the land of Egypt, and I will smite the firstborn. And then he says, however, if you will take a spotless lamb, slay the lamb, God says he'll spare the life of the firstborn and take the life of the lamb in your place. Now you're inside that house, and you're the firstborn, and it doesn't matter if you're a firstborn adult or you're a firstborn child, and you're in that house and it's the night of the Passover, what is going to be your disposition? How should you sit in the house? You say, have we applied the blood to the doorpost? Yes. The lamb is here. You see the lamb, right? We're about to eat it for supper right now. Yes. Should you sit in the house and go, I hope it works. Is that the way you should live? No. Why not? Because God tells the truth. God said, when I see the blood, you could, you know how you might sit in the house? Man, I know something about God. And he doesn't, he does not like this, this, and this. And oh, 
man, I hope I'm okay because that's, that's the kind of person I am. I deserve to die in Egypt tonight because a holy God is passing through. God didn't say, when I see your sinlessness, I'll pass over you. So when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. It was faith in the word of God enough to say, I'll trust in the blood of the lamb, not in myself. I'll trust in the word of God that if he said the blood is my substitute and that because the blood is applied to my house, the blood is applied to me and the lamb is applied to me, that that lamb died in my place, I do not have to live in fear of the wrath of God because he promised when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When the angel came through, he was not looking for anything but as the blood of the lamb on that doorpost. When it comes to you and God, all he needs to see from you is faith in what Jesus Christ did for you. Not faith in what you've done for him. Faith in what you've done for him is still pride. Yeah, Faith in what he's done for you is the way we obtain salvation. The promise of God was, I'll give you salvation, meaning you do not have to fear my wrath and my judgment if the blood is applied to the doorpost. If you have demonstrated your faith in my word by applying the blood, by your faith, I'll pass over. Is that not what he's saying? And he says to them, here's what I love about this. He says, this will be a new beginning for you. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. Do you know how the Hebrew calendar was formed? By the Passover. This nation had gone down into Egypt and died as a nation and came out alive. It came out a new nation. It's a picture of the new birth with God's help. I hope to preach on that next Sunday, how they came to the Red Sea and how that's a picture of leaving the old behind and being birthed. And it was a new nation with a new beginning. When you and I put our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us, the Bible says it's a new beginning for you. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. They had been slaves. They were now going to be servants of God. Free, their will free. They had been bound to sin and bound to servitude. Not now, they were going to be free. And so then, this Passover speaks of deliverance from the condemnation of sin through the provision of God and the promise of God that when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Number two, it speaks of deliverance from the corruption of sin. In verses 14 through 20, we read this. After the blood is applied and God has already promised, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, he says this. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. I want you to remember what I did for you. By the way, you need to remember all your Christian life, what God did for you the day you put your trust in Christ. It's a memorial. You know what an unleavened bread, a life lived by sincerity and truth does? It helps you to remember what Christ did for you. It is not about securing your salvation. It's about remembering and honoring the one who saved you. Verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. By the way, seven represents perfection or completion, meaning your deliverance is complete. Uh, Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in the selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, 
you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul should be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether it be a stranger or born in the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. Remember, what did the unleavened bread in 1 Corinthians 5 represent? Sincerity and truth. God does not accept pretentious faith. When they ate unleavened bread, you know what they're demonstrating on the inside of that house? We believe in what's on the outside of the house. We believe that God's going to pass over us. Our lives lived in purity and holiness are a, are a demonstration that our faith in the Word of God is true, that it's sincere. It's the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice a couple of things about this. All right, so what we see in verses 14 through 20, the nation of Israel had not only been delivered from the condemnation of God and the condemnation of sin on their lives, but now we see they're delivered from the corrupting influence of sin. Leaven is a picture of sin in that it influences everything it touches. You put a little leaven in a loaf of bread and it influences the whole thing. Galatians says this concerning false doctrine. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5 says it concerning a little willing, open, knowing sin in, the, in, the, in a church. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You know what God says? Get the leaven out. Leaven is a picture of sin. Get it out of your life. Why? Because we have faith in the blood of the Lamb. You understand what was done first? Unleavened bread or the blood on the doorpost? And he said, if the blood is on the doorpost on the outside of your house, then you make sure you're eating unleavened bread on the inside of your house. Picturing, I've not only saved you from the wrath of God, I have saved you from a life that is constantly corrupted by sin. The day the Lord Jesus saved you, He became your master. Righteousness became your goal. Sin became something you now have power to put out of your life. That's Bible. I'll show it to you in just a minute. Romans chapter 6, it's what it's all about. Is that, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The new creature is, you've been a servant of sin. The sin of Egypt has been a constant influence on your life. The eating of unleavened bread, it was simply symbolic that I've delivered you from the corrupting influence of sin. Because of their consecrated position, they were in a house that was sanctified by the blood of that sacrificial lamb. They, were, they were, had a practice commanded. It is very interesting to note, and we'll have to move along, that God commands on the Feast of Unleavened Bread a day of rest at the beginning and a day of rest at the end. You know what rest is, is symbolizes? I've written down three words in my mind that rest speaks of. Number one, confidence. He said, I don't want you in your house going, Whew. He said, no, the first day, do no work. Rest. Rest. Meaning, you, you, you sit in your house confident that you're safe from my judgment. No work the first day. No work the last day. I want you resting. Rest is confidence, contentment, and calmness. Is that characteristic of your life today as a Christian? Are you confident that when God tells you, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, meaning when you're saying, Lord, I will indicate to you with my mouth that I trust you with my heart, You've promised that if I put my faith in your son, you'll forgive me. Is that the promise of God, by the way? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might be saved. Is that what it says? How many of us believe that words are important? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a promise. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, meaning you are expressing your faith in the Lamb of God as the payment for your sin, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou might be saved. Is that what it says? Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, then the next verse says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God says, If you slay that lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost, I promise to pass over you. You put the blood on the doorpost and go inside and rest. Not worry. For God hath not given us the spirit of Fear, but of power, and of love, and sound mind. So he commands rest on days 1 and 7. The Lord Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know what the Lord was saying? I don't want you working for your salvation. I want you trusting. I, don't, I want you to rest the first day and I want you to rest the seventh day as a picture that you are resting in my promise to save you and protect you. So then he commands rest and he commands that they should eat unleavened bread, meaning I am not calling you to continue to live the way you have in Egypt. I have liberated you from the influence of the culture around you, from the sin that's around you. Eat the unleavened bread. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13 through 16 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not trying to become children, but as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, when you were slaves to sin, former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. What God is saying is, I have saved you, not only from the death angel, <clears throat> I have saved you and delivered you from the corrupting influence of sin. And my friend, that's still true today. Through the forgiveness of sins, we are not given permission to sin, we're given liberty from it. We are given the power to overcome it. And so then that brings us to our third and final point. The Passover lamb pictured deliverance from the condemnation of sin. It it portrays the deliverance through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the deliverance from the corrupting influence of sin. And then thirdly, it pictures the deliverance from the controlling power of this world and sin. Exodus 12, 11, again, says, And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You know what he's telling them? After the Passover, I'm getting you out of here. I don't want you to stay where you are. Have your feet ready. We could say this is a picture of the rapture, but because Canaan land is not a picture of heaven so much as it is a picture of the victorious Christian life, what he is telling them is, once I have delivered you through the Passover lamb, you'll be ready to move at my leadership. You'll be ready to walk in newness of life. You're not a slave in Egypt anymore. Now you're a servant of God. So you have your feet ready. Be ready to move at my command. And then we go to Exodus 12, verse 29. <clears throat> Exodus 12, 29. And by the way, a key verse, a couple of key verses. Verse 27 says that you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshiped and the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. Verse 29. 
And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as ye have said, and take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptian jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. What you just read of? 430 years they had been slaves having to do whatever Pharaoh told them to do. Part of that time they were under Joseph, but most of this time they were slaves. And every time they wanted to go worship God in the wilderness like they were supposed to, Pharaoh got in their way. They were bound. They were not free to go and serve the Lord. But now that God has moved and the Passover lamb has been slain and the blood applied... Through that Passover, they are now free to go do what God wants them to do. I urge upon you, read repeatedly. If you're a child of God and you want to get established in your faith, Romans 6 and 7 and 8, get a hold of this concept of the freedom you have in Jesus Christ. God did not save us that we might be free to do what we wish and get His blessing on it. God saved us that we might serve Him. Look with me, if you would, very quickly in Romans chapter 6. in the deliverance from the controlling power of sin and Egypt, Egypt a picture of the world and the God of this world, you know what? There are people before they get saved that sincerely try to serve God, but they've never put their faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They're putting their faith in their service. That won't get you out of Egypt. It takes the blood of the Lamb to get you free from the bondage of Egypt. Amen? That's what it takes. And so there are those who've tried to serve God. I want to serve God. But may I say this morning, if you've come to personal faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who you know paid for your sins, friend, He freed you to serve Him. You can do the will of God by His might, by His strength, by His power. They were granted their freedom on this night and they were also granted a fullness. Do you realize the children of Israel went out of Egypt rich? God would later say, build me a tabernacle. Where would slaves get money to build a tabernacle? God spoiled the Egyptians. By the way, you know what I believe they got? They got their payment for all those years of slavery. They had not been paid. They had been abused. And God made sure they got paid, meaning he gave gifts to them so they could serve him according to his own will. Romans chapter 6, we referenced it. A few minutes ago, looked at it a couple of weeks ago uh, on the subject of baptism and what that pictures for us. But the Bible says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield, ye your, neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead 
and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. You've got the, the favor of God on your behalf. What then? Verse 15, Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, just like Israel were the slaves of Egypt. Ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Every time the Israelites tried to move as a nation and tried to move as a people and go worship God in the wilderness, Pharaoh got in the way and said, Oh, no, you won't. You belong to me. And God says, Oh, yes, they will. They belong to me. And God granted them liberty through faith in the blood of a substitutional, sacrificial, spotless lamb. And upon that liberty, they were free and full so that they could go do everything God told them to do. By the way, you and I are not free from this health and wealth so-called gospel that says you're free to go make yourself rich and have the best life on earth. No, you and I have been freed to do the will of God. You're not, there is no freedom in sin. Sin is a master. Sin is a, is a cruel taskmaster. And when Christ saved me, he freed me from it. I don't have to obey sin anymore. I can now obey God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 7, 17 and 18. Paul speaking of our natural state, that firstborn man in us. He says, now then, uh, verse 17 of Romans 7. Uh, excuse me, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will, that's the desire, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. He was a slave to sin. Who should deliver me from the body of this death? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is our position in Christ through faith in His shed blood. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's that unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Anybody that understands gravity and the laws of aerodynamics can get a hold of this. And I don't understand them well. But to overcome the law of gravity, you have to have a greater law. May I say this? The law of the Spirit of life in Christ is greater than the law of sin and death. And the law of God ministering life through faith in the shed blood was greater than the law of Pharaoh that said, I won't let you go. God says, my law of life is better than your law of death. And through the law of God and through the deliverance of God, through that Passover lamb, God freed them from the bondage of Egypt. Look with me, if you would, a couple more passages and we're done. Galatians chapter 6. I love this verse. Once Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, the world lost its grip on Paul. 
It no longer was his master. It no longer could tantalize him and hold him through pride and lust. No, by the cross of Christ, the world was crucified unto him, and he was crucified unto the world. You know what Egypt said? We're done with you, Israelites. Get out of here. We don't even want you anymore. You know what the lost world says to the true believer in Jesus Christ? We don't want you. You know what the true believer in Christ says? Good, because I don't want you either. (laughs) I'm not talking about loving people's souls. I'm talking about loving the world. Saying, you know what? Oh, I've got to... I'm in bondage to sin in the world. No, no, no. If we're saved, we've been set free from the power of sin that's hold on us. Galatians 6, 14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's that sinless, spotless, substitutional, sacrificial lamb. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me. Paul said, I'm done living for the world because of the cross of Christ. He said, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I... Unto the world. And then if we are reminded, we won't turn there and read for time's sake, but in 2 Peter 1, the Bible tells us that in Christ and through the divine nature that we have access to by faith, all things are given unto us that pertain unto life and godliness. You know what God did? He liberated the Israelites from the stranglehold of Egypt and He set them free and fully furnished them to go do everything He wanted them to do. It's a picture of salvation. Now, you understand, do you think the Israelites fully comprehended all that they were given on that night? I don't think so. That's why the Lord said this has got to be a memorial and you need to rehearse this every year so you'll remember what I did for you. Do you realize in 2 Peter 1, the Bible says if you don't add to your faith, you'll forget you were purged from your old sins. It didn't say you'll lose your salvation. You'll forget what God did for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that the blood of Christ was shed for your sins but you have forgotten what he did for you when he saved you. He saved you from an eternity in hell. He saved you from the lake of fire. He saved you. I don't have to fear what's coming in the tribulation because I'm saved from wrath through him. He saved me so that sin is no longer my master, so I no longer have to live like the rest of the world. I am free to serve God. Maybe this morning you're saved, but you just need to reckon what it means to be saved. You could be here this morning and you say, you know what? It just seems too simple that if I trust Christ, God will forgive me. If that seems too simple, you need to get past that. That's the way it is. My faith in Jesus Christ is counted to me for righteousness, according to Romans chapter 4. It is not the performance of those in the house. It was the shed blood on the doorpost. Does God see your house and know your... Does He see the blood of His Son? Or does he see your works? The Egyptians were confident in their own works and they were judged. Those Israelites put blood on the doorpost and the death angel passed over. This morning it could be you're here and you've never put your personal faith in Jesus Christ and him alone to spare you and deliver you from the wrath of God. And if not, you'll never have the power to live the life of unleavened bread until you've put your faith in the blood of the Lamb. Holy living is not the fruit of trying to get to heaven Holy living is the fruit of knowing I'm going. Don't miss what I just said. Holy living is not the fruit of trying to work your way to heaven. Holy living is the fruit of knowing that God promised me salvation through faith in His Son and I can live a holy life from the confidence and rest that I have in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We need holy living, do we not? It comes through faith in the shed blood of our precious Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how God may be speaking to you today. A very doctrinal heavy message. But friend, 
Every good thing comes from good doctrine. We need to understand what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the substitutional, spotless lamb. When you lay hold of that, keep the feast with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.